Hello everyone, welcome to The Forrest Stevens Show. In today's episode, I talk with Martin W. Ball, who is an author, PhD in religious studies, and we talk about atheogens, we talk about integration, and we talk specifically about 5-MeO-DMT and why he thinks it is the most important out of all of the different psychedelics out there and why he has done so much research on it specifically. So this is a really, really interesting talk. I just kind of let him go off and kind of explore these different concepts. I come back with a couple questions here and there just to guide it in a naturally curious direction. But this is, in my opinion, just chock full of powerful information, especially if you're interested in the realm of exploring yourself with the different substances that are in this world and um, allow us to experience a different reality than we are experiencing currently. So with that, there's just one quick little ad coming up and then we'll get into the podcast. Thanks everybody for watching and listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast for a while, I know that you're going to enjoy this next thing that I'm talking about, which is my book. It's called Tripping. And this book and the podcast are definitely interconnected. And sometimes in this podcast, on the solo episodes, I'll actually just open up this book to a random page, read it out, and talk about what it kind of brings to mind or how it was formulated and thought out. Um, these pages aren't full, so this can be kind of a journal type thing where my paragraph in here is a jumping off point. It's a new thought and it will spark creativity within your own mind and you can add to it in your own way. Now that's what I do on the podcast sometimes and uh, a little bit about this book. It is available on Amazon uh, as a paperback. I highly recommend it as a paperback as that trip companion as that journal and you can just randomly flip to it or you can read it through and kind of just gain some insights and some uh, some nice jumping off points for yourself. But this book was written over a year of my life, um, a life in isolation and doing intense yoga every single day for over an hour, breath work, and combining that with different psychedelics, predominantly cannabis, and writing down the thoughts that came to my mind. Then I filtered through those thoughts and those writings and edited them up a little bit so that they were concise and that they would create a new thought in your mind. That's the goal of this book. And I hope that it will um, be interesting. And so far, a lot of people who have bought it have said that it's been really, really awesome. So, uh, I mean, that's <laughs> that's good for them. And uh, I think if you enjoy this podcast, like I said, just to wrap it all up, if you enjoy this podcast, you will definitely enjoy this book. It's available in the description below. Recommend getting the paperback. It is available on Kindle as well. Thanks, everyone. My name's Martin. Uh, full name would be Martin W. Ball. That's what I use for my publishing. Um, Got to use the middle initial because way back when I started publishing in 2006, there was um, another Martin Ball who was publishing books on Welsh phonetics. So went with the W. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm a, mostly an independent author and publisher. So that translates into most of my books are self-published. Um, I'm currently working on, I think it's my 25th book at the moment. Um, so I've been publishing books in the area of uh, psychedelics since 2006. The first book was called Mushroom Wisdom. That's the one book I've had published by a publisher and the rest have been self-published. And um, 
I've been very interested in uh, 5-MeO-DMT in particular. Uh, I'm interested in all psychedelics, but that's the one that I think is the most interesting um, for a, a lot of reasons. So I've been focused on that uh, fairly primarily since 2008. And uh, 2008 is also when I started my own podcast, The Entheogenic Evolution. And, um, you know, reflecting on that, doing it for so many years, um, that back when I started, there was maybe two, three, four other podcasts in the world that dealt with psychedelic topics. So mine was like maybe one of four or five in the world. So I've been doing it for 16 years now, putting out weekly episodes and have also used that as a platform for conversations about 5-MeO DMT, um, because particularly back then in 2008, almost no one knew what it was. Uh, there was almost no accurate and reliable information about this molecule at that time. And it's only now actually being studied at universities and research institutes and things like that. So, um, you know, I've been using my podcast and my books and my talks and interviews and stuff like that to really focus on this molecule because I think it's the most unique and the most fascinating out of all the psychedelics. Um, so yeah, I've been doing the podcast since 2008. Um, been publishing my own books. I pretty much have at least one book per year, I think, that I've been putting out. Uh, the one that I'm working on right now is focused on uh, 5-MeO-DMT integration, and it's my ninth book on the subject of 5-MeO-DMT. And uh, I also worked as what I, I called a non-dual energetic practitioner working with 5-MeO-DMT with clients. I did that from 2009 to 2016. And I really do like to emphasize the part where I say a non-dual energetic practitioner because it's not being a facilitator or a therapist in the ways that people might imagine that is, that I had a very particular way of operating and working with the energy of the experience. And that's why I call it a non-dual energetic practitioner. And that's really another area of my interest and focus is on this idea of non-duality and the non-dual experience when we transcend beyond the apparent divide between subject and object, self and not self, that that's been a primary focus of mine since my very first 5-MeO-DMT experience in January of 2008. And uh, these days, uh, I don't actively facilitate any kind of medicine experiences, but I do work as a professional integration coach. So I work with clients from around the world, mostly people who are experiencing 5-MeO-DMT, um, but really the range of psychedelic substances. And I also work as something as an advisor for people who do facilitate medicine experiences and 5-MeO-DMT experiences that sometimes I offer them some tips and advice for their own practice, or they might bring um, a difficult case to me of, you know, this is what showed up when I served this person and maybe they hadn't seen something like that before. Um, so I have a, just a really broad level of expertise and experience that I bring into this. And um, I guess just to wrap it up, I'll also say that I have uh, my PhD in religious studies. So that's my formal educational background. Um, I myself am not religious. I'm not a spiritual person, though I was a, a self-identified spiritual seeker until I found what I was looking for. And that brought that to a conclusion. And then just more broadly, uh, I live with my wife, Jesslyn, my son, Jaden, my dog, Moxie. I'm in Ashland, Oregon and Southern Oregon. And I'm also quite the avid musician, uh, also an artist 
and um, nature and bird photographer. So that kind of encapsulates the things that I do and the things that I am. Nice. Thanks for sharing all that, Martin. There's a lot to go off of. Um, I'm curious to get right back to the beginning there. What what made you interested in psychedelics to begin with? Was it personal experience with them? Um, was it, and, and, and if it was, what were those experiences? And yeah, why did you even start to become interested in these things? Well, we'd have to go back to high school for that then. Um, so I was raised in Northern California. Um, and in high school, you know, everybody's drinking you know, drinking beer, rum and Coke, stuff like that. And um, I got really drunk once and decided, like, there is nothing about that at all that I like. So I think it was like 15. You know, it was one of those times where I was out drinking with some friends and we had, like, rum and Coke. And I ended up having to crawl across this, um, you know, football field or something like that, like trying to get to my friend's car, like I'm crawling, you know, it's one of those classic, like, oh, I love you so much, man. Thanks for taking care of me. But I couldn't walk. I had to crawl. And by the time I got home, my friend's like, dude, do not be thrown up in my car. You know, so we just got the door open and I threw up and then I had to crawl to the front door. And then my sister, who was a year older than me, like she came out and she helped me get into the house and she brought me, um, you know, a little bucket to throw up in in my room. And then she cleaned it all up before my parents got up. And then I was hung over and I was like, okay, I don't ever want to do that again. I have like zero interest in doing that. And then sometime after that, um, I think it was a girlfriend at the time. She got a joint, she got a cannabis joint and we smoked that. And so I'm 51 years old. You look like you're a younger man. Um, this was the height of the Nancy Reagan, just say no program of, you know, drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. Users are losers. Um, here's your brain on drugs. And, you know, marijuana is this gateway drug that's going to drive you insane and turn you into a bizarre sex offender and criminal. And, um, yeah, we smoked this joint and I was like, this is so cool. I feel inspired and energized and just aware of my perceptions and feelings. And we were listening to music. It's like, my God, music has never sounded so good. Like this is, this is amazing. And went out into nature and just like looking at the night sky and just kind of tripping on that. It's like, this is okay. Everything I've ever been told about marijuana is an absolute lie. It's just not true. Um, so then I kind of became like a cannabis activist. I started like putting up flyers, I did some research and I put some flyers around my high school, you know, anonymously of like, um, the constitution is written on hemp and, you know, this was available as medicine up until, you know, the marijuana tax act and all of that. Um, so that anyway, that, that was my introduction to quote unquote illicit substances. And I was like 15 years old. And, um, also around this time, uh, I'd always been sort of spiritually curious. I was raised in a secular materialist household with no religion, no spirituality, but I was always very interested in it um, because I wanted to know what is the nature of reality? Like what really is going on here? And do any of these religions actually have anything to say about that? Or is it just a bunch of made up crap? Um, so I ended up getting interested in Zen Buddhism first. That was right when I graduated high school and I started out at Occidental College I was 17 years old when I went to college, and I started out as a philosophy major, 
and then ultimately became a religious studies minor because to study Buddhist philosophy, you had to go to a religious studies department. You couldn't study that in philosophy because it's very biased towards Western cultures. And as far as I know, probably still is. Um, and yeah, so it was in college when other people who kind of knew of my interests and my curiosities, uh, they suggested that I should try some psilocybin mushrooms. And people were telling me, yeah, well, you know, we think you'd find this quite curious. So why don't you try it out? So it wasn't until the summer between my first and second years of college that I did get to try some mushrooms. And it was kind of classic in the sense that I went with some friends to this um, music festival in Northern California that was called Gathering of the Vibes. And for me, you know, I was a pretty straight-laced kid for the most part and show up at this music festival. And I didn't know stuff like that still happened in the world. I mean, there was a bunch of hippies walking around. People were naked, covered in mud, all these dreadlocks and people openly like passing around mushrooms and joints. And I was like, what? This still happens, you know? So that was um, the early 1990s uh, when when that took place. So that was quite eye-opening. And my friends and I, we split some mushrooms there. And it was really just kind of an uncomfortable experience. I got separated from my friends and I'm tripping and I'm walking around. I was like, oh my God, it's like I can see inside everybody. And this is like really weird. And I eventually found my friends and, you know, sat down and then noticed I could really get into the band that was on stage with some African high life band that was jamming out so that was fun um but it was mostly just kind of weird and and my initial impression was i don't know why anybody would choose this over cannabis like i I would much much rather just smoke a joint because this was really weird but i was still curious so over that summer ended up trying mushrooms a few more times and um it was the second time where it just felt very illuminating that it was a higher dose. And I think that that's significant that, you know, when you're working with a really small dose, it creates these shifts and these changes, but it's really hard to understand like what it is other than things just feel weird or different. Whereas with a higher dose, I do find that you're much more likely to reach points of clarity where you're understanding like, oh, this is this experience that I'm having right now. But anyways, that that experience was coming on uh, the two friends that I were with, they decided they wanted to go to 7-Eleven and like get a soda or something. They're like, I'm not getting in a car with anyone right now. So you guys do that if you want, but I'm just going to stay here. And my friend was really into reggae dub music. So he had this, this dub music was just blasting. And I'm sitting in his apartment. And I'm looking at this white wall. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to see these interlaced and um, interacting Celtic knots start to weave and form in this white wall. And I was like, whoa that's really strange. Why am I seeing Celtic knots? And then sort of this Celtic imagery was there. And then I felt like I was interacting with it. And so in looking back, I can actually see that I was what I would call a proto non-dualist at that point. But this idea of, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm interacting with my mind across these different levels simultaneously. And so these things that are appearing on the wall as emanating out of the wall, that's actually my mind projecting that onto there. But now I can interact with it which is really weird because I can interact with these projections, which don't seem like projections, but I think they are. And at that point that the idea that dawned on me is like, Oh, maybe this is what quote unquote, they are talking about when they're talking about the spirit world or spirits, that it's like this level of interaction with the self. So yeah, that's, that's how I got started. And, um, at that time I was 18.
So again, 51 now. So it was a while ago. Yeah. And, and what led you to um, 5-MeO DMT and why is that molecule so significant for you? Okay. Well, there's a lot of story around that. So I'll try and be really brief about that. Um, but <laughs> there's... <laughs> So for example, this book here, Being Infinite, this was the first memoir that I wrote, An Entheogenic Odyssey into the Limitless Eternal, a memoir from ayahuasca to Zen. This is basically the book that I wrote to answer the question that you just asked. Okay. So there's a whole book about it. So that's what I mean. I'm going to try and be short. Okay. Um, but it was all kind of grand cosmic coincidences. So um, for a number of years, I'd been running a theme camp at Burning Man. And that theme camp was called the God Box. And this was all based on an idea that I got in 2003, where I just kind of developed this whole ritual to make people go through. And the idea was, is that you, you go through this ritual, and at the end, you get to enter into the lair of the mystic toad and open the God Box, and then you get to see what's inside. And the God Box itself was actually a mailbox that I had decorated and painted. And when, when it was all done, it kind of looked like a toad. And I had heard of the Sonoran Desert Toad and had heard of 5-MeO-DMT, but didn't really know anything at all about it. And so it was not an intentional reference in any way, but just I created this box and created this funny little ritual that made people go through so they could go and open the box. And so that was the God Box, and that was also the Mystic Toad. and in the very end of 2007, I moved from Southern California up here to Ashland, Oregon. And I had my own website at that point. I had already published my book, Mushroom Wisdom. So it was just kind of a new public figure in the psychedelic space. And I moved up here for a relationship which did not last more than a couple months after I got here. Um, but I didn't have a job or anything. So I was just applying for any kind of work I could possibly get at that time. And one of the places I applied for was a independent record label operating out of Medford, Oregon, which is just up the highway here from where I am in Ashland. And I actually got a call back from that application. And there's this other guy on the phone and he's like, okay, you've got a PhD in religious studies. Like you are way too qualified for this position that we've got here at this record label. But then the conversation turns. They said, so um, tell me about that mystic toad you've got on your website there. It's like, well, you know, it's a mailbox. And, you know, I explained to him what the God box was and kind of this, this joke ritual that I made people go through. And then he countered with, well, I've got the real thing over at my house if you'd like to come over and try it. I was like, uh, what do you mean? He's like, well, I've, I've got these Sonoran desert toads and in their secretions um, that you can milk them and you gather these secretions from these toads and it has 5-MeO-DMT in it. And this is, he said, quote, this is a rocket ship straight into the heart of God. I was like, well, that sounds pretty good to me. So, okay, I'll, I'll go and I'll give it a try. So this individual whom... I publicly refer to as Hal Lucius Nation. That is not his name, but that is the public name that he uses. He was just in the process of creating what he calls the Temple of Awakening Divinity, or Toad for short. And he had been introduced to 5-MeO-DMT a couple years before, and like many people who experienced this, decided that it was now his purpose 
to share it with as many people as possible because it, it was the most profound experience he'd ever had in his life. So he was just kind of getting this whole toad thing going. And he invited me over and he had a small amount of secretions from the Sonoran Desert Toad, also known as the Colorado River Toad, also known as Bufo alvarius, and more recently has been renamed to Encilius alvarius. Um, but often in the 5-MeO DMT world is just referred to as Bufo. But it contains 5-MeO DMT within its secretions. And there's also a number of other tryptamines that are in there as well. But for the most part, those other tryptamines do not survive the heating process of vaporizing the secretions. So mostly what you're inhaling is 5-MeO-DMT. Now, he had these two toads and he had milked them, but there wasn't a very large amount that he had there. So he wanted to split that because he wanted to give me a little and then he was going to give himself a little. So he gave me some of this. And I took my hit and he instructed me about, you know, lie back down and have your experience and it'll be about 20, 30 minutes. And, you know, so see you later. So I took my hit and it really wasn't that big of a dose. Now, at that point in time, I had been working with salvia divinorum for a number of years and I was working with enhanced leaf salvia divinorum. So my, my version of a fast acting intense psychedelic was salvia divinorum. And if you're working with enhanced leaf salvia divinorum, you take your hit and a few seconds later, reality starts to unzip, then it uh, permeates into multiple inter interpenetrating uh, planes of existence simultaneously, and then they all turn inside out upon each other and they go in and out at the same time. And then eventually reality zips back up and you find yourself back in the room where you took your hit. So that was my version of this is what a very, very strong short-acting psychedelic does. Now, by comparison, this small amount of toad was kind of a, hmm, so what? So I laid there for like 20 minutes and I eventually sat up and I felt like it was pretty much done. And Hal asked me, like, where do you go? And I said, well, nowhere. They go, oh, really? He's like, yeah, yeah. It's not really a big deal. Whatever. Uh, you know, this rocket ship straight into the heart of God. Uh, okay. But that was... um the very end of 2007. So that was within about a month that I had moved up here to Ashland. So then in January of 2008, he calls me back up. He's like, oh, Martin, I have some pure freebase 5-MeO-DMT this time, and I've got plenty of it. So I know it didn't really work last time. I want you to come back over. So I don't know what the date was exactly. I do know it was January of 2008. I go back over to his house. And for anybody who's seen me online, I've told this story many, many, many times, but it, it's worth repeating that he had a new vaporizer at this point. So it has like this glass chamber, like this tall glass chamber, and there's a piston at the top. Inside the chamber, it's filled with argon gas, which is an inert noble gas, meaning that there's no oxygen present inside the chamber. So no matter how hot you get it, nothing's ever going to burn. So every, all the material that you put in there is going to turn into pure vapor. So he put an amount of 5-MeO-DMT at the bottom of this thing and heated it up in this glass chamber. This milky white vapor fills up this chamber and there's this piston at the top. And he has this complex ritual that he does. But anyway, he eventually brings the pipe to me and the little mouthpiece is, you know, right by my lips. And he's like, okay, inhale, here you go. And so I'm inhaling and I'm watching the piston and the piston gets down to about right here. So there is still about a third of the hit left. 
And in that moment, it was, oh my God, this is it. And it was absolutely unstoppable. So within seconds, all of reality dissolved and it became this infinite fractal mandala of this pure white light that was kind of rainbow refracted out of the edges, just incredibly complex mandala. And it was all of reality. And it was like, my impression was, oh my God, it's God, this can't be real. What the fuck? What? I hope you don't mind if I swear. Um, and it was like this living starlight that I immediately recognized, like, this is alive. This is conscious. This is pure being. And it felt, so this is where the ego death happens, that within seconds, it was also like, oh, shit, you've really done it now. Like, you're dying. But I was in a place in my life where I was just like, oh, my God, I'm dying. This is awesome. And so I just completely surrendered into it. And then as that was happening, I just said, thank you, God. And then I just repeated over and over again, just thank you, thank you, thank you. And it was like these infinite reverberations of just pure gratitude, pure, infinite, unconditional love. And it was like that was Martin saying it to God. That was God saying it to Martin. It was God saying it to everything. It was everything saying it to God because there's there's no distinction between subject and object at this point. This is the non-dual experience that there's no observer and there's no content. It's just this pure experience that's taking place. And it was like this infinite orgasm, this infinite ecstasy in every molecule of my being is just vibrating. And it was just presented as this is truth. This is the nature of reality, that there is only one consciousness, there's only one being, and it is this infinite fractal being of the infinite energy of pure unconditional love. And it's everyone and everything. And then I was just in that for, I couldn't even tell you how long, but I was in that for probably at least 20 minutes. And then there's this very noticeable transition that takes place where then suddenly I noticed oh, my name's Martin, and I could remember who I was. And at that point, I again realized, I'm, I'm on earth, I'm in a room. Like, I didn't, I didn't know any of that for this time period. And then more layers of my ego came on. It was kind of like, I, I've sort of felt like, like a satellite falling down to earth and going through different layers of the atmosphere as it's getting in and it's getting more turbulent, as it's getting closer to the earth. So it was kind of like falling back down into this perspective. And then I noticed, oh, there's two other people in the room. But then it, it was just, those are human beings. That was the first thing I could identify. And then it was, oh, human female, human male. And then, ah, human male. That's right. Room, human male, planet Earth. Oh, that one has a name. And then I was able to name them and identify them and then also able to name myself. And so slowly reality coalesced back into what we call the normal 3D world of subject and object. But at that point, my egoic impression of the experience was, this is what I've been looking for ever since I was a little kid and wanted to know what is the nature of reality? What really is true versus what isn't true? and this was light years beyond any kind of psychedelic experience I had ever had or any meditative experience. And it was just this full recognition that this was true. This was the, the true nature of being. 
And ultimately, there is only this being that I call God. And it's not the religious God, but it's this unitary being in consciousness that actually is performing as all the various subjects and objects of reality. So here in this podcast, we've got two people. We've got however many people are listening. So we've got a bunch of different human beings, and we have various objects. You have a microphone. I have a microphone. You have a computer. I have a computer. You've got headphones. I've got headphones. You've got a chair. I've got a chair. But there's only one actual being here that is experiencing itself as all of these different subjects and objects simultaneously. So through you, it's performing as Forrest. Through me, it is performing as Martin. But there's only one actual being in consciousness, and that is everything. And so every moment of our experience is actually just God experiencing itself through multiple forms and um, subjects and objects simultaneously. So that really changed my life. Yeah, absolutely changed my perspective on what's real versus what's not real. What what's really going on here? How did it change your beha- behavior after you experienced this? Like you you said, it changed your life. Did it? Was there something you you brought back with you that actually changed the trajectory of your life in some way? Like was this like a kind of a fork in the road situation that you went one way as opposed to if you had never experienced this? Well, absolutely. Um, again. You know, I wrote Being Infinite about all of this. but And so some of the backstory is that I had been in a very unhappy marriage for a number of years prior to this and um, was just very dissatisfied within my life. And I, and I had contained all of it. I never shared with anyone. I'm unhappy. I want to change my life. Um, and I just just buried it, buried it, buried it. And it had been that way for a number of years. And so what prompted my move to Ashland was that I had left my wife, left my job, and there was a woman that I wanted to start a new relationship with here in Ashland. And that's what brought me up here. So I'd already kind of made this decision of, I've kind of been living a lie within my life. And I feel that I've really held myself back and I've really shut myself down. And I don't know what's on the other side of this for me, but I want to start choosing more authentically for myself. And the way that I put it was, I want to listen to my heart and follow that. And so when this happened, that this was just like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been holding myself back from. This is what I didn't even know was out there for me. So it came at a a really crucial point in my life. And what I do like to say is that it immediately started this process of transformation and what I would call energetic recalibration and reconditioning. And that then took over my life for the next year and a quarter. Um, But in the immediate aftermath was complete dissolution of any kind of existential worry, fear, or anxiety I ever might have had. There was this sense of, well, look, I just died and I just went through that whole process. So death is totally nothing to be afraid of. And it also really radically changed my view about just what is the nature of reality. Um, Because in that experience of 
fundamentally, the experience of being God meant that, well, none of these religions are right. Um, beliefs in spirits and souls and reincarnation, that's obviously incorrect because there's only God busy being everyone all the time. There's no such thing as souls or spirits that are reincarnating. It's just this one universal consciousness. So it just it completely radically changed my entire worldview. And also this sense of, well, if God is busy being me, then the only thing I need to do is be myself. That's the only thing anyone ever needs to do. But it also means that the only way that you can really effectively be yourself is that you have to know yourself so that you can be that. And so that was just the beginning. And that I always like to emphasize that was just the beginning. And it started this long process. Well, actually, it wasn't that long, objectively speaking. And when I came out the other end of that, that's when everything really solidified within me. Um, but the process in and of itself, that it, there's a lot of details, there's a lot of aspects to it. That's why I wrote a book about it. But um, essentially, everything that I have been doing since this event in 2008, and then the subsequent experiences that developed after that, has been based on that experience. Every book I've written, every piece of art I've made, every piece of music I've made, um, everything I've done on my podcast, uh, Everything is about helping other people understand this experience and learn how to work with it for themselves. And so it just it fundamentally changed the trajectory of my life um, and fundamentally changed me. And it's definitely something that I would not choose to have otherwise in any way, shape or form. Right. And so I guess what you're you're kind of explaining there, all the changes um that have taken place since then or after that experience, um, all of that is like integration, right? And and you're an integration coach. So can you talk to me a little bit about what that looks like um, for yourself and for others? Yeah. So this also this is the topic of the book that I'm working on right now, which is 5-MeO-DMT integration. And I really like the subtitle that I've chosen for this. It is embodying non-duality is not what you think. And that's that really encapsulates what my focus is, that um, so many people approach life and being around having the right ideas, having the right understanding, having the right beliefs, and having the right practices. Um, but that for me, it's actually about embodiment of ourselves and that embodying the true nature of ourselves doesn't have anything to do with what we think or what we believe or what we want to be true or what we don't want to be true that it's, it's an embodied experience. And that's also what I would describe as from that very first 5-MeO-DMT experience, that I went from being what I would call a philosophical non-dualist to an embodied non-dualist. So what I mean by that distinction is I had studied lots of different religious traditions, lots of different philosophical systems, and had come to the intellectual conclusion that probably it is the case that there's only one universal consciousness and being that is everyone and everything. But that was my belief. That was my, my idea. I had a lot of rational arguments for why I would back that up, why I thought that was reasonable. But if somebody had asked me, have you ever experienced that directly? My answer would be, 
well, I've maybe caught little glimpses of that on mushrooms where I felt like I was a part of everything or that it was all some kind of big unitary thing, but there is still subjects and objects there. But no, I've never had this full non-dual mystical experience. Then immediately afterwards, it was, oh yeah, I've felt that in every molecule of my being. There is no part of me that does not know that that is true because that is just the fundamental experience that I've just had. So that was a major shift. And what's very unique about 5-MeO-DMT is that it creates this cascade of energetic reactions that take place long after anyone has ever had their 5-MeO-DMT. So it's something that the reverberations of that energy is so profound that it will keep working on you in the days and weeks and months afterwards. And even at this time, you know, this is a big part of the book that I'm working on right now, that at this time, integration was not even a word that people used in psychedelic culture. There was, there was no concept of that that I was aware of. Um, so there wasn't any like integration. So during that time period, it triggered this cascade of effects that were starting to happen in me. And the only way I knew how to deal with them was to keep moving forward and keep processing my energy. And there was virtually no information available publicly about 5-MeO-DMT at that time. So there wasn't anything for me to reference. Um, There was nowhere for me to turn to get information or even anybody to talk to. Um, As I said, uh, most people in the psychedelic world had never even heard of 5-MeO-DMT, had no idea what it was, and nobody knew how it was so profoundly different than pretty much every other psychedelic molecule. So there was nowhere to go except forward. So I went through this process, and for me, the integration was, I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know where this is going. I don't know what this is going to bring me, but all I can do is just keep working, keep experiencing, and keep allowing this process to move forward. And that reached a point of fundamental breakthrough in the spring of 2009. And so for me now, integration is about helping people to understand what this process looks like, because this this was my personal process, but the energies that were at work within that process are universal. Anyone can experience them on 5-MeO-DMT. And many people have the same kinds of after effects that I was getting from my experience with 5-MeO-DMT. So I look at it as this process of helping people to not only embody the energy of the experience while it's happening, but how to embody and process it afterwards. Because so the fundamental understanding that I came to out of all of this is that the human ego, that sense that that sense that you have, that you are Forrest, that sense that I have, that I'm as, I am Martin, that's just a collection of patterns of energy that we have identified with over the course of our lives. And these patterns of energy influence our body language, the gestures that we use, the words we choose to speak, how we speak, our tone of voice, our intonation, what we think about, what we like, what we don't like. These are all just patterns of energy. They're ways that we embody and express ourselves. In the same way that you know, you can take an, a character actor, and a character actor you know, in a movie 
there'll be a different character in different movies because they're embodying different mannerisms, different modes of expression, and they are demonstrating embody them themselves in a different way. They might even change their accent or the slang that they use or the way that they um, carry their body, right? So th this is how we as individuals, we create this character for ourselves. And it starts when we're infants and goes all the way up into adulthood of how we're identifying. But these patterns with which we identify, a lot of them are very self-limiting. So for example, in my old self, in my previous marriage where I was really unhappy, I had kind of adopted this Buddhist view that, oh, well, I'm just attached to being happy. <laughs> I'm attached to having a fulfilling sexual relationship with my wife, that really I need to transcend beyond these things so that I'm not attached, so that I can, you know, embody that Buddhist equanimity. But all that that did was make me repress all of my emotions and repress my desires and basically live a life that was not authentic for me. And so this is, this is the problem of the ego, that the ego makes up a bunch of stuff and believes in it and then goes around behaving as though those made up things are true and uses internal judgments and also external judgments that we've adopted from outside about who I should be, how I should be. And so we, we spend a lot of time performing and we spend a lot of time um, not really expressing. So also with my Buddhist side, like that was, I don't ever want to make waves. I don't want to bring up a topic that's going to make my wife uncomfortable because I want to be compassionate. I want to be the nice guy. And I lived that way, but I was miserable. I was totally miserable. Um, and so this process of this energetic reconditioning is that first we've got to move all those repressed energies out because believe me, they're there. They are absolutely there. And I'm someone coming from a background where I didn't have any trauma. I didn't have like any, you know, terrible event that had happened to me that had caused anxiety, depression, or trauma or anything like that. I was a relatively healthy individual, but I had a huge backlog, you know, a decades plus backlog of unexpressed emotion and energy. And so this process of embodying yourself in a more liberated and authentic form first thing we usually need to do is process out all of the repressed and unexpressed material. And then we've got to go through a training period of learning how to more authentically be ourselves um, so that we're not just continuing on with those patterns. So first, by dissolving the ego, we get an opportunity to get all the way out of those patterns, release any repressed energies, and then we have a process of reconditioning, of, being, of retraining ourselves of how to be a human being, and then come into a more authentically embodied mode of ourselves where we are letting go of the uh, resistance. We're letting go of the repression of our emotions, that we're actually available for where our emotions are as they are arising. We're available for our authentic ex expression, and we stop trying to perform for other people or for ourselves. And so it's this process of, of growing into authenticity and that takes on many different forms and is encountered in many ways that are very surprising for people on 5-MeO-DMT. So 
I mean, it, it, it is now widely accepted. Again, it wasn't back in 2008 when I first started talking about it, but it's now widely accepted that this is the most powerful psychedelic compound on planet Earth. There really isn't anything else that compares to it. And so for integration work now, I bring all of my experience of having gone through my own process and having worked with numbers of individuals over the years in their process that um, people bring to me their case and say, well, I had 5-MeO-DMT for the first time, and this is what happened during my session. And I'm able to help them understand how either their ego was running the show or how they were embodying this non-dual energy, help them understand what was showing up and how it was showing up, be able to give them tips for how to move through your next experience, how to look at what's happening to you now afterwards, what kind of experiences are you having, what are you feeling, what are your thoughts, what are your behaviors, and give them advice for how they can bring themselves into greater alignment with their authentic energy. And so it's all about focusing on this process that it becomes very important, but it's, it's only something, this is only a service that somebody can provide if they've gone through this themselves because it's not, it's not something that you can just understand in the abstract. And, you know, with people with 5-MeO-DMT, they often find that people who have experience with other psychedelics, they can't relate to them because this is beyond any other psychedelic experience. And so, you know, if you, somebody has experience with ayahuasca and peyote and mushrooms, they're still not going to be able to relate to what somebody is telling them about their 5-MeO experience. It's beyond that. And so I do feel that it's important that somebody have um, some kind of foundation within their own process of working with it. And more than just once, you've got to have ample experience. Hopefully, I've also been able to see lots of other people go through an experience with it. Even better would be having some experience with facilitating with it as well and working with it in that capacity. And then being able to um, understand it and articulate around it um, is another part of the skill set. And then, you know, you can be qualified to help somebody integrate the experience. And so these days, integration is a very hot topic. Um, but again, when I was going through this, it was not, it just it wasn't even a word that people used. It wasn't until around the time that I was completing um, working as a non-dual energetic practitioner that people were even really using the word integration at that point. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, one thing you've, you've brought up a lot is this idea of universal consciousness and how of in, in embodying sort of like a one looking at everything as one, as opposed to the dualistic way. Um, I guess something that's come to my mind here is just and maybe there's no clear answer to this, but I, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on why we don't naturally embody that. Why are we maybe prone or why do we live in this world where we are separate than, and not fully connected in this way? Okay. Well, there's a variety of different ways that we can answer that question. Um, one is we can actually give it a, a theological answer. And <clears throat> at that level, we can look at, well, what is the whole point of this thing called physical reality? And from that perspective, this unitary consciousness evolved itself through all of these energetic forms over billions of years in order to evolve into forms that have self-awareness that are thoroughly invested within their experience. So 
this is part of the non-dual experience for a lot of people, that they experience themselves as God in this non-dual state. And then when they come back out of it, many people comment that, my God, that was really profoundly lonely because I knew I was the only thing that existed, the, the only thing that ever was, and the only thing that ever will be. So this unitary consciousness, which is also the ultimate intelligence, is actually looking to give itself something to do so that it can experience things and that it gets to do that through what we call living beings. It gets to experience itself as a dog and a cat and a bat and a rat and a hat and you and me, right? And that through these egos that we are thoroughly convinced that this is the reality. And so when we feel love and when we feel fear and when we feel passion and hunger and terror, we really buy into that. And so this universal consciousness is like, yeah. I, I like to say that in some respects, God is kind of an experience junkie, that it just wants experience. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad, because it is all experience. It is every winner and every loser. And so this, it's like, as human beings, you've probably had this experience where if you really enjoyed something, probably the first thing you did is you told your friends, your family, like, oh man, I just watched this movie. This was so cool. You've got to see it. So we have this innate urge to share. Or when we love something, it's so much better just to love someone. You know, if it's like, oh man, I just want a partner. I want somebody to love. Like sharing love with someone is much more satisfying than just loving. And so there's this overwhelming urge to share because that's what makes things more meaningful. Because there is no inherent meaning within reality. It's just a bunch of random events taking place. Meaning is something that the human mind imposes upon experience. But by sharing something, it makes it more meaningful for us. So this consciousness is looking for its own sense of satisfaction. And therefore, it evolves itself into these forms. Now, from the um, developmental perspective, why does it happen? Why do we not embody non-duality? from the get-go. Well, we kind of do as, you know, little tiny infants, but then we start to develop the ego and that this is, you know, the ego is not a bad thing. That it is the ego that allows us to recognize I am here. This is reality. What's going on? Who's in charge? What are the rules? What's behind that mountain over there? What makes things work? What happens if I take apart the atom? You know, these are all questions that the ego could ask. And so it's this really amazing tool for self-awareness. Now, what happens as we are developing as children is we really quickly learn there are some things that mom and dad like and some things that they don't like. And then we pick up from our culture and our society, these things are good, things, these things are bad. Do this, don't do that. Be this way, don't be that way. So we're constantly picking up what I like to call energetic asymmetries where we're told some things are good, some things are bad. And, you know, I've studied a lot of human cultures, and I will just tell you that most things are very, very relative, that there are very few universals across all human cultures. So there's no universal sense of right or wrong, good and bad, worthwhile um, things to avoid, you know, that there's a lot of relativity and flexibility there. But we pick all these things up, and then we start to internalize them, and we make them our own. And then as we are learning how to navigate the world, we also are developing various forms of asymmetries, 
that as we interact with the world, um, like I noticed you were holding your pen in your right hand. And for me, I'm, I write left-handed. So if I want to write something down, if this subject wants to interact with this object, I am going to use my left hand. So there's an asymmetry right there. So we all have these asymmetries that are imbalanced where in our belief systems, in our ideas, in our behaviors, and in the ways that we interact with the world, there's all these asymmetries. And this is one of the fascinating things about 5-MeO-DMT. So it's a highly energetically charged experience where it's just this feeling of energy. And what happens when people move beyond the ego and they actually let go of it and it's this ego death experience, what happens is people's bodies open up into bilateral symmetry. And they're no longer relating to the world as I am the subject and these are my objects. This is what I'm interacting with. There's no, there's no me in the pen there. So it just becomes this experience where this energy is then embodied through these um, bilateral symmetries within the body. And then you can see it. So somebody is like in this non-dual state and they're in this perfectly symmetrical position. And then you can see suddenly they look over to the right and then their body changes and you can see, okay, your ego just came back online. In that very moment, an asymmetry gets introduced. So in other words, in order for us as self-aware beings, we have to navigate the world with all kinds of asymmetries. And those asymmetries embody our relationship between subject and object, whether that's a mental idea or it's a physical object. Um, so we are not predisposed to being in this non-dual state. And actually the non-dual state is not functional as an individually embodied being because in the non-dual state, you don't see the tiger that's about to jump on your face and eat you. And you're not going to be motivated to get out of the way. So as a biological being, there's a strong drive towards self-preservation. And we as human beings, we have sophisticated enough hardware up here that we can take that individuated sense of self and create it into this self-image of the ego. And then we can say, I really don't want the tiger to eat me. I am going to get out of the way. Whereas, you know, the deer just sees the tiger and gets out of the way. It doesn't think about I. It's just, uh-oh, predator, run. Whereas we think, ooh, that's a tiger. I don't want to get eaten. And so having that individuated sense of self, having that ego, is not only what allows us to survive as animals, but it also is what allows us to create and explore as human beings. So everything that human beings have ever accomplished comes out of the human ego. So again, the ego is not, it's not a bad thing, but the way that I characterize it is that through our normal development, basically human beings become God toddlers. And I think that we all have the capacity to mature beyond that into what I would call God adults, but that the ego is so energetically resilient and it's so crafty that it's very, very difficult to get outside of it or beyond it or to dissolve it. And it will co-opt almost anything you present to it very, very quickly. And so having this energetic tool of 5-MeO-DMT, when we introduce it to someone, it has the capacity to completely dissolve their ego and give them the opportunity to have a direct non-dual experience and also embody that for themselves. 
so that it's this fantastic tool for helping this process along, you know, or someone could spend, you know, 40, 50 years in meditation and maybe get a little bit of a breakthrough here and there. But just in terms of efficacy, 5-MeO-DMT is just far more potent than any other methodology that human beings have yet discovered or experienced. And this is why I like to call it the God molecule. Like This is the one that does it. Like If you want to know the true nature of reality, and that's also something that's very common when people come back from their 5-MeO experience that you know had this non-dual quality to it, they say, wow, it's just obvious this is what's really real. This is how things are. And so there's really not a lot of argumentation there. But I hope that answers your question adequately. So we had the, the non-dual perspective and then the evolutionary biological perspective. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's it's almost, in in my eyes, to to sum up part of that, it's like it's a survival. It's, it's hard to survive if you just feel connected to everything, you know? Like, so it's like a survival mechanism almost. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, do you have any thoughts on why this molecule exists and why we can experience this from it? Well, then, you know, we're kind of getting into speculative metaphysics, but I mean, one potential answer is if, if we are trapped in duality, in this, you know, physical reality, and if God did this to itself, that essentially it built in a passcode into reality that allows it to get out, that doesn't require any kind of belief system or religious ideology or cultural system, and that it works in a universal capacity that you can take any human being on the planet and they could potentially have this experience. It doesn't matter what kind of background they come from. So in that sense, it's kind of like the ultimate hack. It's the ultimate cheat code. And that it's just, it's just simply built into reality. So it's kind of like, well, God built this incredible prison for itself and also built in the key. And, um, you know, so that's kind of the metaphysical answer. But, um, you know, just from a biological perspective, that um, it the production of both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT seems to be evolutionarily tied into the mammalian um, family so that um, all mammals produce 5-MeO-DMT and DMT um, and that it functions as neurotransmitters within our bodies. And so there's, you know, there's speculation of, well, what biological role does it play? And, um, you know, we don't necessarily need to get into that because it's mostly just speculation, but you can find trace amounts of both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT in all mammals on the planet. So then the question of, well, why does it function this way? Well, we know it's functioning as a neurotransmitter, but most psychedelics work as a neurotransmitter. So why is this one so different? And it seems to be what happens when we ingest it is that the molecule itself brings the brain into a state of high harmonic resonance, where essentially we start producing gamma waves. And so most of the time, we're in alpha and beta. And then as we go into sleep, you know, we go into delta and we go into theta. And it's really rare that human beings go into a gamma brainwave state. But that's associated, like, you know, there's been um, EEG studies done on really advanced meditators and they go into gamma waves. Um, but they're in a state of absorption. So they're not, you know, they're just meditating and they're going into gamma waves. And I think also with um, 
high performance artists and athletes. You know, when people describe getting into a flow state where they're they're not even thinking about what they're doing and it's just it's happening and everything is perfect, um, those most likely are, are also gamma waves. Um, but this is where we can actually ingest a molecule and we can induce gamma waves within the brain. And that, and it's not just gamma waves because simultaneously there's this sense of being highly energetically charged where this is where it's quite different from meditation. So when people go into meditation, they describe it, everything is calming, everything is relaxing, everything's going down and then it washes out into this perfect unitary state. But here we're going the opposite direction that we're actually raising the energy levels to the infinite level and then also going into gamma at the same time. So it becomes embodied in a very different way. Um, and this is, it just seems to function where it's activating the brain in a way that most other psychedelics don't. So most psychedelic experiences are still dualistic in nature, where there's still someone there who is perceiving and experiencing content or visions and they're able to relate to it in some way. Like, whoa, well, I had the, you know, I had the vision of uh, Mother Mary the other night while I was drinking ayahuasca, right? That's still me having a vision of some object that exists outside of myself. Whereas here, the way that it's interacting with the brain, you know, we also see other psychedelics that they're actually lighting up the, the vision aspect of the brain, or it might even be lighting up the hearing aspect of the brain. So we have these, you know, quote unquote, hallucinations, things we see, things we hear. Whereas 5-MeO seems to be more total, that it's really just activating the brain and it's um, overriding the part of the brain that is most closely associated with egoic individuated awareness. Um, but ultimately, it's something that I think needs a lot more scientific study and investigation and that we're just at the very beginnings of any kind of real medical or scientific research being done on this, uh, particularly with human subjects. So it's still very, very new in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would definitely agree with that, that it needs, I mean, it, it seems like such an incredible thing that why would we not look further into it and try to understand it more? Yeah. Um, one thing that, that, you know, there's a little bit of parallels and maybe you can just talk on this. Um, you talked about there kind of being a conscious being, um, and having basically a, a kind of a theory that it's wanting to create something to do, creating experience, creating um, something to not just be alone, maybe. Um, this, somebody could also have like the theory basically that we live in a simulation and that there's some being that has created this to experience the simulation of being me, of being you. Um, what are your thoughts on on like the simulation theory and uh, and and it being kind of slightly related to that other theory there? Yeah, well, it kind of comes down to reality is just what it is. Reality is what it is. So um, ultimately, it doesn't really matter if we want to call it a simulation or if we want to call it some kind of sophisticated illusion. It's like, look, it, it's still the physical reality that we live in. It's still what we experience. Um, it doesn't really matter if it's a simulation or if it's real. I mean, this this is a sticking point. This is where the ego gets really interested. It's like, ooh, ah, I want to know. Like, I'm really curious and I want to make meaning out of this. Like, is it a simulation or is it real? And my comeback to that is, again, it, do it doesn't matter. This is as real as it gets. It doesn't matter if it's a simulation. 
what does matter is that we do have access to that unitary state of consciousness. So we can directly experience for ourselves. It really is all one. And then we can talk about, well, is it some kind of organic bioenergetic simulation or illusion? And, you know, it doesn't really matter because you're still going to need to eat your breakfast. You're still going to need to brush your teeth and wipe your ass. You're still going to need to go to work. You're still going to need to make money. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Now, I suppose the one place that it might matter is if somebody says, well, can we then hack the system? Can we hack the codes to get like different results out of it? And this is a place where I tend to be very, very skeptical. It's like, look, it seems to me like whatever the rules we have for reality, that those were limits that this universal being put upon itself in order for there to be a consistent and coherent reality that can effectively evolve over billions of years and end up with people like you and me that can say, hello, we're here, let's have a conversation. And so I don't really think that those rules can be hacked, that we might find some sophisticated workarounds. But, you know, it's like, so if reality is all just a simulation, can I hack it to the point so that I'm never hungry and never have to eat again? You know, maybe. Um, but even there, it's kind of, well, what's the point? Okay, it'd be cool if I could hack it so I could fly. But ultimately, isn't that what science and technology effectively is, is learning the rules of the system, how we can manipulate them, and how we can get the desired results that we want out of it. Okay, so for me, that's what the hack is. But when, you know, like people make spiritual claims of, oh, well, I meditated enough and then I learned how to levitate. And I've always been, okay, sh you know, show me. Show me. You think you can levitate? Please show me. You think you've hacked the rules of reality and can just bend them with your mind? And I've never seen a convincing demonstration of any kind of abilities like that. So for me, I think it's mostly science and technology. And there again, it doesn't really matter because we get into, well, what is the nature of a quark? Well, shit, a quark is like some kind of vibrating packet of energy that seems to exist about a particle and a wave at the same time. Like, man, is that like a computer program? Is that just a simulation? Doesn't really matter if we learn how to manipulate it and then we can create nuclear bombs. Not that those are good things, but I think, I think we've learned how to hack them. Because, you know, we can do some pretty cool stuff. And the fact that you and I are talking on a computer and I can see you and we're doing this in real time and we're on different places on the planet, I think it's a pretty clear indication that science and technology is the reality hack, ultimately. Um, so that's where I come down on that issue. But really, it comes down to it doesn't really matter because reality is still reality regardless of whether it's a simulation or illusion. It's still what we have to put up with every day. No, I love that. That's great. Um, that's all I have for you here, Martin. So I'm just curious, um, and the viewers I'm sure are too, where can people find you, your books, your podcast, whatever else you'd like to direct them to? And of course, I'll put all the links in the description of the podcast as well. Um, yeah, well, let me just run down a few things for you and share a little bit more about what I've got going on right now. Um, so my, my main website is just martinball.net and it's not a fancy website but it's got links to all my other stuff on it so yeah my books are available on amazon and elsewhere in paperback and ebook and also audiobook so out there at audible um, and also the apple bookstore uh, for integration work my website is non-dual and theogenic 
integration.com, non-dual entheogenic integration.com. Uh, my podcast is the entheogenic evolution. It has the same title on that's my YouTube channel and also wherever you find podcasts, you can find the entheogenic evolution. I have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Martin W ball for art. My webpage is fractalimagination.com. Uh, for music, you can find my music on Spotify or anywhere else that there's digital music. And that's just under the name Martin Ball. And also I have my Bandcamp page, which is uh, martinball.bandcamp.com. And um, let's see, in terms of what else is going on right now, I, I'm literally just in the last steps of publishing uh, this book, 5-MeO-DMT Integration. Um, that's going to be out sometime within the next month, most likely. And also very recently at the very beginning of this year, I put out um, an AI illustrated version of my 2016 novel, The Solandarian Game, which is only available as an ebook or as a PDF because it's a really big file. It's um, over 400 pages and I used Midjourney AI to create over 600 images to illustrate the novel. And for anyone who's interested in 5-MeO DMT and non-duality, that, that, that's actually what the movie, or excuse me, what the book is about. Um, and it's a science fiction story about an AI that becomes enlightened um, as a non-dual awareness and then takes over human society and restructures it. Um, but that so I wrote that book in 2016, uh, but the illustrated version just came out on January 1st of this year. So that's just something that I'm plugging right now. And uh, coming up this year for the first time ever, I'm going to be teaching as an adjunct faculty with the Unchurch University is um, doing an online 5-MeO-DMT facilitator training course. And I'm going to be an adjunct faculty for that. So I'm going to be you know, giving some lectures on that. And um, yeah, for anybody who's interested in 5-MeO-DMT, that I definitely would point you to my books, that um, they are the, the most comprehensive uh, takes on 5-MeO-DMT that you can find out there. And uh, I think that's probably, I think I mentioned everything that's going on right now. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Martin. I appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.